Welcome to the King's Cast, dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. Okay, well, I sort of stopped this morning and uh, just in the middle of uh, looking at the Bride of Christ, and so we're just going to carry on. Is that okay? So just put your hand up if you weren't in this morning's meeting, if you weren't in. Okay, you aren't going to know what I'm talking about. Okay, let me just recap a little bit. Um, I, I laid a foundation of understanding that according to the Bible, the church is called the Bride of Christ. That's not just a metaphor. That's not just a, a word to describe something. It's actually the single most appropriate description of what the church is. The church literally is the bride of Christ. Now, we don't fully understand what that means and how the consummation of our joining together with Jesus Christ in heaven occurs. We don't fully understand all that. But nevertheless, all the apostles that we have um, written documents from describe the church as the bride of Christ. The Apostle Paul clearly called the church the Bride of Christ in his, uh, in his writings. In the book of Ephesians, which most theologians will agree is the highest uh, revelation and understanding theologically of the church's purpose, the church is called there in chapter 5 the Bride of Christ. Paul says this is the great mystery. The Apostle John calls the church the Bride of Christ throughout the book of Revelation The church is described as the bride of Christ. And then other people in the Gospels also, uh, notably uh, John the Baptist called the people of God the bride. And so we looked at establishing that. And if you really believe that, if you really believe that, then that puts into sharp perspective how we should view the church. And it also throws into sharp contrast how we should understand God views us. Because if we really are the bride of the Son of God, then that is an incredibly special position and privilege that God has placed us in. If we really are the bride that he purchased with his own blood, that he is preparing a a place for us to live with him for all eternity, if he is coming back to get us, If we really believe all of these things, then it should revolutionize our relationship with God. And it should make us live in a way appropriately that God has designed us to live. So we looked at that, how God uh, created the bride. How we created by his very DNA, by the breath of God inhabiting us. us, And and we looked at those things this morning. If we can just go to uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22 and verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner My oxen and my fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention. They went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. 
The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Have you noticed that Jesus used the wedding as his primary parable? Do you think that's an accident? Or do you think he is purposely revealing to us the purpose of salvation, regeneration, sanctification, why he's coming to get us? I don't think it's any accident that Jesus' greatest illustrations were about weddings. We looked this morning how the first miracle he did was at a wedding in John chapter 2 where he turned water into wine. And his parables, especially towards the end of Matthew, he starts to emphasise the fact that there is a wedding coming. He explains how everyone has been invited, but lots of people are not actually replying to the invitation. They're not coming to the banquet. So by the time you get to chapter 25, he gives another parable, specifically describing the end times, because this is what the disciples have asked him. And he gave the parable of ten bridesmaids, or virgins. And he describes how they have been invited to a wedding banquet, and they all think they're going, but only five of them are actually going to get in. Isn't that interesting? So we've got some people who have said, no, they're not coming to the wedding. And then in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, you've got ten people who think they're going to the wedding, but actually only five of them are. Jesus is showing us very clearly, or trying to get us to understand very clearly, the principle of the coming wedding. You see, the wedding banquet, the wedding supper of the Lamb, is the picture of our ultimate salvation when we are caught up to be with the Lord in heaven. It's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's a wedding banquet that God has prepared since the foundation of time where those who belong to him will be joined to Jesus Christ as his bride, his true church. And it's given in the description and the parables and the types and the metaphors of a literal wedding. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding. Has everyone ever been to a wedding? Is there anyone never been to a wedding? Good, because you need to leave because you'll not understand anything I'm talking about. Okay? The whole point is, Jesus' parables, he used the wedding because he probably grasped that everyone at least knew what a wedding was like. So if you've not been to one, you've seen one on TV. So you understand the principles of a wedding. Now, I told you earlier this morning, last year we had, um, well, we had seven arranged weddings in, in my church. We've only had six, another one's been postponed for uh, later this year or even the year afterwards. And let me just tell you a few things about some, uh, some aspects of weddings. First aspect of a wedding, it will mess up all your plans. Yeah? Now, as a pastor, you see, pastors like to be organised. Good pastors like to be organised. That's right, right Phil, isn't it? We like to plan things. <laughs> so, like, at the beginning of the year, you try and plan the church programme. So I like to take people on mission trips. I like to take them to Africa. We try and go every year. 
I also take tours to Israel. We try and do those every two years. And so I try and plan out the year ahead. What, what outreaches we're going to do. What teachings we're going to do. What, what church activities we're going to get involved with. Mission and all these kinds of things. Now that's really hard when you've got just about every family in the church coming to you. Telling you that they're going to have a wedding that year. So I wanted to go to Africa like I normally do in July. But two people wanted to get married in July. How inconsiderate. (laughs) I'm trying to plan God's will for the church. And these selfish young couples are only interested in getting married. Don't they know what the Bible teaches? Don't they know that the important thing is what the pastor wants? (laughs) Not what they want. But you see... Did God want them to get married? Yes, I think in every instance it was a good match and it was something God wanted. But you see, God's purpose is the wedding. When he created Adam and Eve in the beginning, that was the purpose. That man and woman would come together and that they would be fruitful and they would multiply. That was the picture of our ultimate being joined to Jesus as the church, as the bride of Christ. God's plan is the wedding. And so unfortunately... I had to deny my plans and allow the weddings to take place. So I couldn't do a mission trip because I had to do a wedding. We even every year try and just do, because you can do this up in Yorkshire because it's nice countryside. We try and do a church camping trip. Okay, we like to go away to the countryside. Yeah, look at you all, posh people dancing, <laughs> camping. What on earth is that? That's just for old-fashioned, traditional folks. Yes, well, we, we still are in Yorkshire. So we actually get all the church and we get tents and we go sit in the middle of a field and get bitten by mosquitoes for a week. And, and it's great fun. And we like to do that. And I couldn't do it because some, they wanted the wedding on the same week. I said, we couldn't do anything. My own son wanted to get married. What a selfish little kid. I said, he wanted to get married. When he knows I've got church activities to do. So my entire year as a, as a planner for the church was ruined. Because these weddings were occurring literally every month we had them. Throughout the summer period. But the reality is. If you are going to be ready for God's wedding. All your plans are going to have to be put on hold. Because that's God's purpose. Let me tell you something. God is not going to postpone the wedding of his son for anything you've got planned. Let me tell you something else. God is not going to postpone the wedding of the bride of Christ, the church, with his son for any other religious activities you put as more important than that. God's planning a wedding. We're all invited. You better make sure that you're going to that wedding. Because the interesting thing is in the parables, not just that one we read, But also when you read the same parable in in the other Gospels, they all came with excuses as to why they couldn't come to the wedding. And here's the interesting thing. One of the excuses was that they couldn't come because they were getting married. Now, in my book as a pastor, that would be a legitimate excuse for not coming to the prayer meeting. You know, if someone said to me, Pastor, I can't be at the prayer meeting this week because I've got a honeymoon. You know, I say, oh, that's fair enough, you know. But when it comes to obeying God, nothing 
is an excuse that is valid in his eyes. You cannot use any earthly legitimate excuse for disobeying what God's will is. He will not accept it. And whatever you put as preferential or a higher priority than what God himself has planned, God will see it for what it is. That is an excuse and he will not accept it. And Jesus told us clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, that many, not a few, not some, many will come on that day with their excuses and say, Lord, Lord, we were doing this, we were doing that, and they were all good things that they were doing. Lord, did we not cast out demons? Lord, did we not prophesy? Lord, did we not do lots of religious activities? And Jesus said, I will tell them plainly, depart from me, I never knew you. That word no, I was sharing this with Pastor Phil earlier. It's the same word that Adam and Eve used in their intimate relationship as man and wife. Adam knew Eve. It means they were one together. They were one together in a love relationship. Whatever you are doing in life, it doesn't matter how religious it sounds, how spiritual it sounds, if you are doing that instead of preparing for what God has for you, Jesus will denounce it. Nothing can take the place of God's wedding. Nothing must stop you being ready for that wedding. So I had to put all my plans on hold for this wedding. Everything else had to be reprioritized. Because those brides, you know, have you ever seen a bride when she's getting ready for a wedding? She's like on drugs, isn't she? She's like, she's not interested in anything else in the universe. You know, you could go and tell her the day of the wedding, oh, uh, excuse me, World War Three has just broken out. And she would go, I don't care, it's my wedding tomorrow. It's not important. All she's focused on is the wedding. She's not interested in anything else. She's totally obsessed with the wedding. Because that is her priority. It's her only consideration, her focus, her energy. Everything she has is processed through the view of getting married. That's what the Church of Jesus Christ should be like. We are totally focused on what Jesus is doing. Whatever you think God has called you to in life, and it can be anything, it never takes the place of being ready for Jesus to come and take you to the wedding. Don't you ever put ministry in front of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't you ever reprioritize his commandments so that you have an excuse for doing something other than what he's called you into. And he's called us to be ready for the wedding. The Holy Spirit is not primarily here to give you gifts. His primary role is to get you ready for the wedding. His primary role is to keep you clean for the wedding. And I, I shared earlier, another thing I've noticed about weddings. Every bride I've ever seen was clean. Let me tell you something else. Every bride I've ever seen had her wedding garments on. Now you might think, well that obviously, but if you read the rest of the parable that we've just read, there was a man in the wedding banquet who didn't have the wedding garments on. Now, 
You have to understand, in a Hebrew wedding, in an Old Testament system of wedding, everyone who was invited to the wedding was given a wedding garment. They didn't have to, they didn't have to purchase it themselves. The guy who arranged the wedding, which was nearly always the, the father of the bridegroom, he would give everyone a wedding garment. If you've ever read the story of Samson there in the book of Judges, it explains this. He gave wedding garments to those who were called to the wedding. So everyone who's called to God's wedding has been given a garment to wear. Did you know that? What did Jesus say to his disciples? Stay in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Don't you dare try and do any ministry until you are wearing the clothes I sent for you. The first thing God did for Adam and Eve when sin came into the world was give them a garment to wear. Gave them skins to wear. The last thing Jesus said to his church in Revelation chapter 3, remember the first thing God ever did in Genesis was give a garment to his people so that they wouldn't be naked. The last thing he said to the church in Revelation chapter 3 was, you do not realise you are naked. 6,000 years after God had been giving a garment to his people and his church still wasn't dressed. His church still wasn't ready for the wedding. Have you got the garment on? Because according to the parable, the man who didn't have the garment on was thrown out. Because God's not taking a naked bride to his wedding. His true bride is clothed in the wedding garment. Every bride I have ever seen at any wedding I have ever performed has always had the wedding garment on. Let me tell you something else. Everyone knows who the bride is at every single wedding I have ever been to. Because there's only the bride dressed as the bride. Now lots of people dress very nice for weddings. Lots of people put on their three-piece suits. And a lot of the ladies buy expensive dresses and outfits. But only one person dresses as the bride. And that's the real bride. Don't ever go to a wedding dressed as a bride thinking it'll be funny. <laughs> it won't be funny. No one will laugh. You'll get into trouble. Only one person can be dressed as the bride, the real bride. Jesus knows who his bride is because she's wearing the clothes that he gave her to wear. Now I wrote a book on the garment and I go through the whole of the Bible, how in every, every book of the Bible God describes the garment he's given us to wear. But I'm not going to talk about that now. I want us to understand that we have to be ready for the wedding because it is coming and God's not going to delay it. And he's not going to tell you when it comes. Because according to the Hebrew pattern of the wedding, it's not like our English Western uh, system of marriage. Here's what happens in a Hebrew wedding, a, a traditional Old Testament Hebrew wedding. First thing, the bride has to be paid for. Now we looked at that this morning. Jesus purchased the bride with his own blood. He has purchased his church, the people of God. The price has already been paid. Second thing, covenant. Once the bride has agreed to belong to the bridegroom, they enter into a legal covenant. They're actually, according to Hebrew law, already married. You remember the story of Moses and Mary? Uh, Moses and Mary. 
Joseph and Mary. You remember the story when he found out that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit with Jesus? It says he had to divorce her because legally they were already married, although they weren't married. It was what we call a, an engagement, but it was legally binding. In Hebrew, it's, it's called the ketubah. It means a legally ratified covenant that you are going to marry that person. When you belong to Jesus Christ, when you know he's purchased you with his blood, you take a legal decision before God that you are going to belong to Jesus Christ. You enter into a new covenant. How that was enacted in the Old Testament times is they, they would both take a glass of wine and the bride and the bridegroom would drink from the wine and they would swear allegiance to one another. When Jesus instigated the new covenant, he said, take this cup. He drank from it. Then he gave it to his disciples. You also must drink from it. They were saying, we will belong to you. A legally binding covenant. That's the second part of the marriage legalities. The next part. The bridegroom would then go away and build a house for the bride. Jesus said in John chapter 14, 15 and 16, he says, I go away to prepare a place for you. My father's house are many mansions. I will come back to take you to be with me. Because the next part of the legal marriage ceremony is... After the husband went away and built a house, he would nearly always build the house next to his father's house, by the way, on the family land. He would then come back to get his bride. But here's the thing. He didn't tell her when he was coming back. Because they were already in a legally binding covenant, she would have been ready anyway. She did not need to know the day or the hour that he would return. Now, the ceremonial system that they did this is he would come back at night and they would shout out, the bridegroom is coming. And the bride would always have her wedding dress with her. Now, it was nearly always at least a year before he would come back. It was a long period of time, but it was nearly always at least a year till he could build the house. But the bride always had the wedding garments with her. If she went to the well, she had the wedding garments. If she was in the house, she had the wedding garments. Whatever she was doing, she kept the wedding garments ready. Because she knew when that shout came that the bridegroom is here, she had to put on a garment and go. In Revelation, Jesus, Jesus said this statement to the Apostle John. And he said, write this down. Blessed is he who keeps his garments with him. So they will not be naked when I come. Jesus always used this type of language. So the bride had to be ready at any moment for the coming of Jesus. So when Jesus gave the parable in John, uh, Matthew chapter 25 about the foolish bridesmaids, these were the women who should have been going to the wedding. Five of them were ready, five of them weren't. Now did the five that didn't get into the wedding, did they think they were going? Yes. Were they going? No. They had no oil in their lamps. Oil is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. Always in the Bible. You see, without the Holy Spirit, you're not going anywhere. Because it's the Holy Spirit that takes you to heaven. 
It's the Holy Spirit that catches us up to meet the Lord in the air, as told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Without the Holy Spirit, you can't be taken to Jesus, because the Holy Spirit's the only vehicle that's going. If you're not in the Holy Spirit, you've missed the bus, because he's the only bus that's taking you to heaven. Without the Holy Spirit, you're going nowhere. He's the, one, he's the only one who can take you into the spiritual heavenly realm, because he's the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is not an added extra to the life to give us the gift of speaking in tongues or prophesying. They're gifts, they're wedding gifts, they're good. But no, the Holy Spirit's the one who's taking you to heaven. Don't ever reject the Holy Spirit. Don't ever grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't ever resist the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus said blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. It's not that the Holy Spirit is, is somehow very so sensitive he just gets more upset than the other members of the Trinity. That's not what it means. No, it means if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, if you push him away and say he's wrong and I don't want him, then you can't get to heaven because he's the only one that takes you. He's the only taxi going that way. That's why we've got to have the Holy Spirit with us all the time. The foolish bridesmaids, they didn't have the oil. They didn't think they needed it. Oh, we don't need the Holy Spirit. Well, you're not going to heaven then. There's only the Holy Spirit taking you to heaven. You're not going to get there any other way. Even NASA's not come up with a rocket that can get us there. You've got to have the Holy Spirit. Final part of the wedding ceremony. When the bride is caught by the bridegroom to be taken to the wedding, there's the final part. The consummation. Where the bride and the groom become one. And he takes her into the father's house and they consummate the wedding. It's called the ketubah. And then they have a seven day celebration. A whole week. Where they celebrate the wedding supper. An entire festive period of seven days, a whole week. Which interestingly is the final week that you find in the book of Revelation. There is a final seven year period, a final week to come upon this earth where Jesus takes his bride, but then the wrath of God is, re- is, is released on the rest of mankind. But I'm not going to detail on that. So can you see a seven part process of this wedding? It's not like our weddings. We've got to be ready. We've got to be in the covenant. We've got to have our garments with us. We've got to be prepared. We've got to have the oil. We've got to be within the plans of God and we've got to want to go because God's not going to drag a bride kicking and screaming to the wedding ceremony. You've got to want to go. Now one thing I've noticed about every wedding we've done so far, the bride's never ready. It doesn't matter how long the wedding's been planned. You could have been planning this wedding for five years. She's still not going to be ready the day before. It it makes no difference how long you give her. Yeah, it makes no difference. You can give it, you can say, right, you're getting married next week. She'd be no more ready than if you said you're getting married in five years. Because she'll not have everything the way she wants it. I can guarantee the flowers won't be right. There'll be something wrong, the music won't be right, the, the bows on the chairs won't be right, the rose petals sprinkled all over the church will be in the wrong pattern or something. You know, that's what happens these days, isn't it? It's, it's, it's bonkers. Why do they, why? What is it? And another thing I've noticed, by the way, they try and get the groom interested and he doesn't care. Have you noticed that? Do you like these flowers? Mm. Who cares? I want to get married. What do you like, the red bows or the pink bows? I don't care. But he's not allowed to say that, is he? He's got to pretend he's bothered. 
pretend. It was same at my wedding. Well, he was, darling. I, I, I didn't give a monkeys about anything. Do you like the table decorations? At the, I don't care. But we have to pretend. You think Jesus is bothered about half the stuff we do? Half the stuff we get upset about? Because that's another thing I've noticed about the weddings. The brides get about upset about stuff that no one cares about. The frills on the bottom of the dress. Do these shoes go in the dress? No one can see your shoes, it's under your dress. Put some wellies on if you want, no one cares. But it's no good talking to them because they just can't see any sense. Because they're focused on the wedding. See, Jesus is coming to get his bride. Nothing's going to change that. But notice in the parable, Jesus placed the emphasis on all his people to make sure everyone was invited to the wedding. You see, in God's wedding, everyone's invited. That doesn't mean everyone's going. Jesus made it clear a lot of people aren't going. Jesus made it clear some people who think they're going aren't going because they've not understood the requirements of the wedding. They've not answered the invitation. Make sure you know you're going to the wedding. Invite as many people as you can Make sure everyone knows they're invited. Because the sad truth is, there are some people who were invited, but they're not going. You know, several weddings last year that we did in our church, there were some people who got very upset because they thought they should have been at the wedding and they weren't. We literally had some people turn up thinking they were invited to the wedding reception, but they they hadn't answered the invitation, so they weren't actually going. Some of them got quite upset and angry. Some of them even tried to spoil the wedding a little bit because they thought they should have been there, but they didn't answer the invitation. Many will bang on that door, Jesus said. Matthew chapter 25. Lord, Lord, open the door. No, the door's shut. You didn't come in when you had the chance. You rejected what you'd been given. It's not going to be opened. You'll be outside in outer darkness. That's what Jesus said. That's not me, that's what Jesus said. And it's his wedding. Lots of things about the weddings are noticed. I suppose the most important thing is the certainty of the wedding. You see, when the wedding day came, that was it. There were lots of people at that wedding, usually the men actually, Usually the best man or the groomsman. You know, they they didn't really know why they were there. They'd not really got focused. They'd not really got prepared. I was at one wedding and the best man, he didn't seem to realise he had a job to do. It's amazing how many people there are in church that think they're just passengers. Usually it's most people. I often find in churches it's about 20% of the church does 90% of the work. We live in a consumer society where people think they can just come to church and watch and see what happens and listen to the music and listen to the sermon, but they forget that you're part of the bride and you're part of the body of Christ and every part of the body is supposed to do something. Every part of my body functions. Every part of your body functions. When the bride belongs to Jesus Christ, Jesus calls it bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, body of his body. 
When a man joins his bride, the two become one flesh, one body. That's why Jesus also describes his bride as his body. He expects her to function in unity with him through his life. It's only one body. Is that what we're doing? When you turn up to that wedding, do you know what your job is? Do you know what your job is here on earth? Do you know your function? Are you worshipping God on earth? Are you praying to God on earth? Are you giving out the invitations for the wedding on earth? Are you doing all of these things on earth? You see, if we're not really prepared for the wedding, we're never going to understand what God's purpose is. You see, as we saw this morning, when Adam and Eve fell, God lost his bride. His bride chose to follow the serpent rather than God. And every person born into this world is already born into that sinful relationship. We're born into the sin of Adam. We're in Adam. We're born of Adam and Eve. We inherit that carnality, that sinful nature that clings to us. We already belong to someone else. He's called Satan. He's called the prince of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He's got lots of names in the Bible. The serpent, the dragon, the deceiver, the man of sin. This wicked, evil ruler that controls this world and mankind. And do you know what? He's abducted Christ's bride. And God wants his bride back. And so even from Genesis, God embarked upon a rescue plan to win his bride back. Which was won at the cross when Jesus died for his bride. But the whole of the Bible reveals the aspects of this rescue plan. You see, the truth is... Adam and Eve chose to follow Satan. Now we inherit their carnality. We're born into it without a choice. But the reality is we love the things of this world more than Jesus anyway. We quite happily love the things of this world. Idol worship. Self-seeking. Carnality. Desire for our own selves. The lusts of the flesh. The, the lust of the eyes. The pride of life, the Bible calls it. We all have those things. We all love other things more than Jesus. But the amazing miracle is, Jesus still loves us more than anything else. And Jesus calls these things, in fact the New Testament calls these things spiritual adultery. Book of James called it that. In the Old Testament they called it serving anything else other than God, adultery. Spiritual adultery. You are fornicating with this world. You claim to belong to Jesus Christ and actually you're chasing the things of this earth. You're following the carnal things of this world. And you claim to belong to Jesus Christ. When Jesus went away to prepare a house, we are supposed to be consecrated and set apart and be ready for his return. Not running around with other men. Not running around with the things of this world. You see, today in Christian circles, there's a cheap grace being, being preached. Where you can love God and give you enough grace and you can do what you want. Run around, commit adultery if you want. God will still love you. Yes, he will still love you, but he won't be taking you to the wedding. He's only taking a pure, spotless and holy bride to the wedding. She's clean. She's pure. She's holy. She has spotless garments. When Jesus wrote to his churches in Revelation 2 and 3, 
to Thyatira and to Pergamon. He says, you've soiled your garments. He says, there's only a few of you there who have clean garments who walk with me. They will come with me because they are worthy. One church, he says, you're not. You're worshipping other things. I'm going to cast you into tribulation. You aren't coming. You've rejected my lordship. You've rejected who I am. You're following your own carnality while still claiming to belong to me. Jesus knows who is truly his. You see, the bride always belongs to Jesus. But today, we have people thinking the church belongs to them. We have pastors thinking they're chief executives of business corporations and they can treat the church how they feel. We, we have people thinking the church is somehow theirs to control and manipulate. You don't ever treat the bride of Christ like that. God wants us all to serve his bride. But she's not your bride. She's his. Just because we serve her doesn't mean she's ours. You know, I could invite someone into my house to fix the plumbing in my house so my bride can get washed. But if he thought that he controlled my bride just because I'd asked him to help in my house, he'd be eating hospital food for a week. <laughs> just because I allow him to serve her doesn't mean she belongs to him. She belongs to me. The bride of Christ belongs to him. She doesn't belong to any man. She doesn't belong to any denomination. She doesn't belong to any, any board of corporate executives who think they control her. The bride, the church, belongs to Jesus. You know, as a pastor, that's, I think we were sharing this earlier, that's one of the biggest reliefs I have. Thank goodness the church is not mine. <laughs> Dear me, I'd go insane. It's hard enough having my own bride, never mind. <laughs> Imagine if I, all these people were mine. Dear me, I can't help one of them, never mind hundreds of them. They'd all drive me mental if I had to look after them all. You don't know what a pastor's life is like. People think the pastor's the bridegroom, but you're not marrying the pastor. You're going to be with Jesus. He'll sort the problem out. The pastor's very limited. Don't put all your problems on him. Take your problems in prayer to the Lord. He's the one who's coming for you. He's the one whose spirit lives in you. He's the one who purchased you. And so way back in Genesis, God started this rescue plan. So from Genesis right through to Revelation, every book of the Bible gives a different understanding of the rescue plan of the bride. Okay? So the first understanding you will get is when God starts the process through Abraham and Sarah. So Sarah is the bride who belongs to Abraham. But Sarah has a problem. Sarah is barren. You will notice that in Genesis, all the brides of the patriarchs are barren. Have you noticed that? Sarah was barren. Rebecca was barren. Rachel was barren. You see, without a miracle, the bride of Christ, you lot, us, can't produce anything. You are totally important. You are infertile. You are barren. You cannot produce life. The only way you can produce life, even if you're the bride of Christ, is if God does a miracle through you. You can't do anything. You can't get one person saved. You can't give one prophecy. Not produce life. You can make something up. <laughs> Which happens more than people think. <laughs> I've had some dumb prophecies in my life. 
Well, you have to pretend that it's done, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's not what an idiot. What on earth are you saying? It's utter nonsense. Sarah had to have a miracle. Rebecca had to have a miracle. Rachel had to have a miracle. But these were the three brides given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So the three men had both been given, had all been given three brides, none of whom could have children. That's some promise, isn't it? The children of Israel, we can't produce one. None of us, all three generations, barren. Why did God do that? It's either a really bad coincidence or God is purposely trying to show us something. Without God doing a miracle, you can't do what God wants you to do. And they knew that. No, they didn't. What did they do? They tried to outmaneuver God. Sarah can't have a child, so we'll get another woman. Rachel can't have a child, so we'll get another woman. We haven't got supernatural power in the church, we're not doing anything, so let's pretend we are. Let's, let's do something different that makes it look like God's doing something. Let's, let's have a picnic and invite everyone in the city and claim they're all saved. And then everyone will think God's doing a miracle. God's not doing anything. You're just having a party. This is what churches are doing. So they bypass it. Let's get Agar. Let's get this slave. That's another aspect that people use. Because God's not doing anything, let's treat people like slaves. God doesn't want a slave, he wants a bride. Why don't we just trust God, believe God, let God do the miracle and work through that? Oh no, we don't want to use faith. Why use faith when you can beat people into submission? Let's implement a program of slavery. Let's get Hagar, this slave, and we'll make her produce the children. As if God ever wanted that. As if God liked slavery. God wants a bride. So it didn't work and they produced Ishmael. And we've still got the problem of Ishmael today. We've still got in the Middle East the fighting and the conflict because of that stupid decision. And you know there are churches fighting conflicts that were started 50 years ago when people in the church, instead of trusting God, tried to do something themselves and created something that didn't work, but then they run around pretending it was God. Look what God's done. God's not done that. You did that. Yeah, but I want God to bless it. God's not going to bless it because you did it. And God doesn't bless something you birthed. He only blesses something his bride birthed. He won't bless something just because you made it happen. He'll only bless something if it's birthed supernaturally by the Holy Spirit through his church. God's not bothered or impressed about what you can do. He's only looking for true fruitfulness through his bride. And if it doesn't work that way, God doesn't bless it. Abraham could have children... But God wanted children through his bride. It didn't count if it came through another woman. And today you have people trying to do their own ministry for themselves with their own effort and their own abilities. And they're blaming the pastor because he's not blessing them. And all they're going to do is birth Ishmael because it's the bride who's supposed to be fruitful, not you. 
God wants a church that's fruitful. He doesn't want you a ministry so you can have your own glossy magazine and your own DVDs and you can ponce about the world telling everybody how anointed you are. God wants his church to be fruitful. God's not interested in making you famous. He's interested in elevating his bride, his church, his people. And today you've got people in ministry and they're totally obsessed with themselves. All they're doing is trying to promote themselves. But until Abraham learned that it's the bride that's fruitful, when you make the church fruitful, then God will bless what you're doing. But when you're just doing it yourself, it doesn't count. Ephesians 4.11, ministry gifts were given to the church. The church wasn't given to ministry gifts. God doesn't give the bride to anybody except Jesus. Do we get that? Let me tell you, a lot of Christians don't. A lot of Christians think the church isn't doing what they want the church to do for them. They've got it in the wrong order. No, it's you making the church fruitful, not the church making you fruitful. That's not going to produce the right fruit. They get it all the wrong way around. And so because Abraham had this faulty misunderstanding, he allowed Sarah to be abducted by Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. You can read it there in Genesis. She was also abducted by Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. She was abducted twice. And do you know what Abraham did? He pretended she wasn't his wife. He says, he says, pretend we're not married. We'll just pretend you're my sister. Because otherwise Pharaoh might kill me. I mean, she'd kill me. Never mind Pharaoh. If I did that. If we walked around caring, I said, just pretend you're not married. I'll take my wedding ring off and it's like, you can come back, lad. We're having none of that. But what did he do? He wanted to distance himself from the bride to save his own skin for his own preference. Do you know Christians are doing that all the time? Oh, I don't belong to the church. I've got my own anointing. No, you haven't. No, just think as your own anointing. What are you talking about? God only anoints his body. The anointing comes down upon the head, which is Christ, then the beard, the leadership, then the, then the robes, then the garments. He anoints his church. His people are under the anointing. He doesn't give you an individual anointing to do what you want. It's for the fruitfulness of his bride. I know some of you aren't liking this, but I'm going on this afternoon, so it don't matter. It's about the church. Jesus came to die for his church. He didn't come to promote a great ministry for himself. He came to purchase a bride. Every one of the apostles died for the sake of the church. They didn't ask the church to die for them. And today we want pe- we've got people running around saying the church is not doing enough for them. The church was never designed to do anything for you. We are to do things through the church, for the church, so the body of Christ may be built up through works of service, Ephesians 4.11, that for which God has prepared in advance for us to do. I didn't get anything from church today. Did you not? Did you not? Since when did you come to God's bride to get something out of her? Would you treat anyone else's bride like that? Your wife didn't do all for me today. I hope she didn't. She's not there to do something for you. 
now that you're bright today. I should hope you didn't get anything out. What are you talking about? You come to church for the benefit of serving God to make the church fruitful, not to get something. Only the bright, only I get something from her. I'm not saying anything else. I'm a husband and I'm allowed to do that. No one else is. But you see, the thing is, when they took his bride, God intervened. You see, when Pharaoh took Sarah, when Abimelech took Sarah, when Abraham ran away, you see, Abraham isn't the true heavenly bridegroom God is. So when Abraham abandoned her, God stepped in. And God turned up to Pharaoh and God turned up to Abimelech. And he says, you've taken another man's bride. You're as good as dead. I'm going to kill you. And you'll notice he didn't say you've taken Abraham's bride. He says you've taken someone else's. You see, God's always got the final view. His bride. You touch my woman, I'll touch you. You hurt my bride, I'll hurt you. You try and damage her, I'll damage you. Paul says anyone touches God's temple, God will destroy them. God will always protect his bride. And that's why throughout the scriptures, you will always find that the woman is always protected. Jesus always protected a woman. Doesn't matter what she'd done. Just had the illustration of the widow giving. Jesus always saw what the woman was doing. Because he knew that the woman was always a picture of his church. So if anyone tried to harm a woman, Jesus always stepped in and protected her. Because she's a picture of the church. And it's the same in the Old Testament. The woman was always protected. Because when the church, as the bride, cries out to God... God intervenes on behalf of his bride. And that's why you'll find in the Old Testament, there's all the books about the women. Ruth, Esther, Song of Songs. Did you know the book of Proverbs is primarily about finding the right woman? You read the book of Proverbs, the first nine chapters is how to notice the difference between a true bride and a prostitute. The first nine chapters. At the end of Proverbs, it talks about the bride of noble character who can find, and it spends an entire chapter describing how you know who a true bride is. It's all the way through the Bible. In the middle of Psalms, you find those songs about the bride, the wedding song, Psalm 45. Forget your people in your father's house, O daughter. The bride is within her chamber. The king is enthralled with your beauty. I will take you into my chambers. Have you noticed that the brides in the Old Testament were always beautiful? They were always described as having incredible beauty. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Esther, Ruth, the Shunammite in Song of Songs, they were all beautiful because in God's eyes, his bride is always beautiful. That's why he came to die for her. That's why he always protects her. When Ruth came, Boaz put his garment over her. You're protected, you're mine, you belong to me. When Esther was in trouble and her people were being threatened, what did she do? Organise a political rally with lots of leaflets to try and petition the government to protect the Jewish people? No, she, got it. she didn't need to do that. I'm not saying that would have been wrong. What did she do? She went to her husband. And she knelt before her husband. And she said, don't let these wicked people harm me. And as soon as the king heard her, he said, who would dare 
touch you. You're my bride. And she said, this wicked man in him, and it was a picture of the spirit of Antichrist. Anti-Semitism is always a spirit of Antichrist. And Haman reached out and put his hands on Esther. Read it there in the book of Esther. And as soon as he touched Esther, the king said, well, the king didn't even speak. He just said, you dare to touch my bride. That was all he said. And the executioners took him out and killed him. Because no one touches the bride of Christ and gets away with it. She has a divine protector. And when you're in trouble, you go to the bridegroom. First and foremost, your priority is to go to him. Because he will give you more protection than anyone else. He's the one. Now Esther prayed and she fasted. But what did she do when she went into the presence of the king? She put on her wedding garments and went and stood in his presence and you know that's all we need to do remember the garments are a picture of the Holy Spirit when you have a problem you get in the Holy Spirit and you come into the presence of the king and you give your petition to the king and he will do the rest he will sort it out so the story of the Old Testament is the story of the bride all the way through not just in the patriarchs, you will find that throughout the Bible, every true man of God who is the saviour of their age, the deliverer, they always chose a bride. Now what's interesting is that after the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they had three Jewish brides. God commanded that his people could not marry brides from forbidden tribes. And there were seven specific tribes that God actually said that women could not come from. I'm sure you've heard of the, the, the Ites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Amorites. Oh, the, the seven different tribes, the, the uh, Moabites. And he lists these tribes. In Ezra chapter 9 and Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 3, it lists the tribes. And it says, no woman can come from these seven tribes. She will be rejected and not be allowed to belong to me. But here's an interesting thing. When you look at those seven tribes, that women were classified as unclean and unfit to belong to God, you'll notice something as you read the rest of the Bible that's very strange. Some of you have already noticed this. When you read the genealogy of Jesus Christ, there's some women included Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. Did you know that they all came from the forbidden tribes? Ruth was a Moabite, all whites were unclean. Rahab was a Canaanite. And all the tribes that were forbidden, the Egyptians were forbidden. Joseph married an Egyptian. And two of the most blessed tribes in Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh, were birthed through a forbidden bride. And you can go through every single one of those tribes and you will find that God specifically chose a woman who was previously forbidden to belong to the lineage of Jesus Christ. 
And so if these forbidden women were not chosen and married into the tribe of Judah, Jesus could not have been born. How is that possible? We all know Solomon was king. Do you know who his bride was? It's difficult because he had a thousand. <laughs> and he still said, a wife of noble character who can find. He had a thousand. He still got the wrong one. <laughs> he actually wanted to marry the queen of Sheba, but she's the one she couldn't have. Because Jesus said, the queen of the south is a picture of the, of the church that is to come. She's saved for Jesus. He married a woman called Neymar, who was from the Ammonites forbidden tribe and she was the birth who, the one who birthed the next king Jebusites Canaanites Ruth was a Moabite Bathsheba was married into the Hittites God purposely chooses that which was classified as unclean according to the Old Testament law he picks the very women who were prostitutes Rahab the very women who were who were Idol worshippers, the Canaanites, the very people who were involved in incestual pornographic practices, the Moabites, he picked those very people to choose a bride from to make a Gentile bride so that Jesus' life could come on earth. And he's doing exactly the same today. It doesn't matter how unclean you are, it doesn't matter what you did in the past, it doesn't matter who you belonged to. There are four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, mentioned there in the New Testament. Do you know something about all four? They all belong to another man before they married into the tribe of Judah. It doesn't matter who you used to belong to. It doesn't matter what sin used to own you. It doesn't matter what carnal habit used to possess you. It doesn't matter if you were worshipping Satan himself and you were married to him as a daughter of Lucifer. When Jesus takes you, he kills the old man and he births you into the new man and you belong to Jesus Christ. Every one of these women, look it up if you don't believe me, their previous husband was killed. And they're married into the tribe of Judah. And, and metaphorically that's what God does for you today. He kills your old man, Paul says in Romans 6. He kills the old man and he births you by the spirit. A new nature of the DNA of Jesus Christ. And you now are a bride to him. The church is the bride of Christ. You don't belong to that old nature. God put it to death on the cross. You now belong to a new man. He's called Jesus Christ. And because these women chose that, because Ruth left the Moabites, left idol worship, and chose to belong to Judah, she ended up owning the field in which she worked as a slave. Because she married the king who owned the land. Boaz, the strong one. So that's where I want to leave it with us this morning, this afternoon. Who do you belong to? Are you going to the wedding? Have you accepted the invitation? Have you got your garments? Are you ready? Are you prepared? Because he's coming. But he's only coming for his bride. He's not taking anybody else. So let's make sure we're part of his bride, the true church of the living God. That's the truth. Thank you for listening, and we trust that the word of God has inspired you today. For further information about King's Church, or to access our large archive of other recordings, 
go to www.kingscambridge.org. If you're listening on iTunes, we would love you to leave us some feedback. God bless and goodbye.